You're listening to audio from Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. For more information, go to cbcsavannah.com. All right, we're going to pray, and uh, I'm going to go to that picture, you guys. We have um, about 58 students this morning. Can you see that? It's kind of off to the left. We got one guy right down there in front. Okay, good. (laughs) We took this on the bus this morning. Well, you get the picture, but we got 58 students and about 20, 25 leaders on the road right now to um, Hotlanta. They're going to waste their time at a Braves game for a while, um, see them lose to the Brewers, and then they're going to go up and do some spiritual things. Um, so now they're, they are, uh, they got a great week planned, and we just want to pray for them. There's a lot of kids that uh, love the Lord on this trip. There's some kids that don't know the Lord, and so we, uh, we're just, just trusting that God would do some great things in the heart of our students. Um, so we want you guys to pray for them, please, this week. Uh, as you think about it, um, bunch of high school is, is not what it was when many of us were there. Um, it's tough, Christian school, non-Christian school. And so if you guys could just pray this week for these students, it's about 50-50 guy, girl, which is amazing for us. Usually it's like 98-2 girl to guy, but we're actually pretty good right now. So um, uh, pray for our guys, pray for our gals, um, just that God would meet them in a special way. They're taking their phones, which is awesome. There'll be no Insta chat or Facegram or anything this week for them, and that's awesome. Um, so their addictions will be broken for five days anyway. Um, and so they can just get alone with each other, with the Lord. Um, they're going to go whitewater rafting. They're going to play crazy Talavo games that he creates. And so we're excited. So just let, let's pray for them, and then uh, we'll pray for our time in Daniel 4. Uh, Father in heaven, I ask that, um, first of all, you protect our, our students I got two on that bus right now, and so I know just uh, a little bit of the, the, the fear of sending students off to northern Georgia in the mountains, um, but Lord, I trust you. Uh, I trust you. Worrying, you, tell, you teach us that worrying is useless. We can't even control tomorrow, so why should we worry? And so we trust you with our kids. I pray for their protection, their safety physically, spiritually, I pray that your spirit would just in a special way as they get away from just the busyness of what they're used to and get some time to just enjoy creation and enjoy each other, enjoy fun. You are the author of fun. You created it. So they get to go do it. And and just in that, that you would meet them in a special way that through the word, through their own time in the word, through just some uh, older Christians kind of speaking into them and being with them, that you do a mighty work and that those 57, 58 students, every single one of them would come back just uh, loving Jesus more, or maybe for the first time. Uh, so we just trust that you'll do that. Again, we do pray for their physical protection. Um, bring them back safely to us next week, and we're just uh, excited to see what you're going to do. Thank you for Talavo, for Payne, for Ethan, for all those going that have put so much hours and hours and hours of just preparation uh, and hard work to just to meet the needs and to shepherd those kids well. So we just, we just entrust them to you. We entrust our time in your word. Um, as usual, I just I have nothing in me that would really to offer except for just brokenness. And so I, I come broken, but I trust that your spirit will speak to the church uh, of Christ uh, so that he is honored and that we are built up. And so please do that uh, despite the fact that we come broken, all of us, but yet we are hopeful because we have a Savior who loves us and who gave himself for us. And so we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks. You guys can have a seat. 
If you've got a Bible, turn to Daniel 4. Daniel chapter 4. Last week, got to hear college pastor Stegg did a great job unpacking Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Um, this week, we're in chapter 4. And if you're kind of new or you haven't been following along, um, we do have these little bookmarks in the back you can grab them to find out what's coming next week. You need to read ahead because some of these chapters are long and we're covering lots of text. But where we've been is in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, comes down to Jerusalem and he sacks it and he takes a bunch of captives away, amongst who are Daniel and his three buddies. And what we've, we call this series Kingdoms Collide, because what we've seen is those who represent the kingdom of God are constantly in conflict with those who are in the world, the kingdom of the world, right? And we've seen Daniel and his buddies, despite the fact that there's opposition, thrive. And so in chapter one, when, there's, when they're you know, offered the king's best food and the best everything, they, they reject that. They will not compromise their faith, right? And in, in the end, they're 10 times better than everyone else. In chapter two, when their life is on the line, their head is on the chopping block, they're not spazzing and flipping out like everybody else. They pray, they trust God, and God comes through. And he tells them what he's going to do through this dream of Nebuchadnezzar through the end of the age, really, and what the rest of the world and the kingdoms of the world are going to look like. Chapter three, last week, Nebuchadnezzar tries to barbecue the boys. He can't barbecue the boys. He tries his best, right? Why? Because God is greater, and so we see them stand. And so we've seen time and time again when the kingdom of God and the kingdom world come, it may seem like the kingdom of the world is winning, but in the end, the kingdom of God prevails, and it will. And so we come to chapter four today, and the focus actually changes. The focus has been on Daniel and his boys. Camera's been on them. Camera is going to turn today off them and on to someone else, onto the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And what you need to understand is this guy is probably, if not the greatest king or one of, uh, most powerful king ever, he's one of them. I mean, his kingdom, if you remember chapter two, is the head of gold on the statue. It is a great kingdom. He is a powerful rich man. I mean, but beyond what we can fathom, right? So, so this is the, probably the most powerful guy that, that has ever ruled, at least, at least the most wealthy guy who has ever ruled. And the camera is going to focus on him. And, and he's the one that's been kind of the thorn in the side of the boys so far, right? But it's going to end with this most powerful man maybe to ever live, kneeling, worshiping, the Hebrew God. It's a stunning turn of events. I mean, it's like, if this guy, if, if there, you remember superlatives from high school, most likely to be in jail, most likely to be whatever, right? This guy was most likely to never become a Christian. I mean, this, that would have been him. Most likely to never bow the knee to anybody. I mean, some of you were that guy. Some of you were like me. And people were like, if anyone ever turns into a pastor, it won't be Fowler. And so that's what he would have been voted, most unlikely to become a Christian. And yet we're going to find that he is now a Christian at the end of the chapter, right? And so we're going to look at that and look at his story and how it happened and really what we can learn about that as we continue our series, all right? So Daniel 4, I hope you've read ahead because we're going to skip some sections just because of the length of the text, but I trust that you're reading. And if not, you can go back and read it later. But let's just look what he said. All right, and then we'll come back and, and, and look at some of the truths. Verse one, King Nebuchadnezzar to all the peoples. Now, let's just stop right there. All right. Who's writing right now? 
King Nebuchadnezzar. It's almost like he's looking at Daniel like, you're always writing in that thing. Give me the pen. I got something to say. He grabs the pen. And now King Nebuchadnezzar, a Babylonian king, is writing scripture. He's, his, his, his notes are in the Bible under the inspiration of the Spirit, obviously. Right? And he's going to tell his story. He's got something to say. And, and he's a horrible, if he was a mystery writer, it would be horrible because he tells you right up front, the end. Right? So, he, so he's, not, he's not good at suspense, but he, he wants to tell his story. Right? So he says, to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth. This is, in, in essence, a modern, for him, a, a modern day tweet. He is tweeting to everybody in the kingdom, right? And he would have had the most followers. In our culture, I, I did a little Google this week just to find out, okay, who, who has, the, I figure someone important had like was the most followers on Twitter, right? So the top 10, you know number 10 number of followers on Twitter is? Twitter. That's kind of self-seeking, I would think. But this guy's like, you know, uh, Justin Bieber, he's like number two, the Biebs. Um, YouTube, um, I didn't even know YouTube was a person, but he's got a bunch of followers. Number one, Katy Perry in our country. How sad is that? 100 million followers, I think, something like that, right? Well, well, in this day, Nebuchadnezzar would have had the most followers because if you didn't follow him, you were dead. And so he's sending this out to everybody in, the, in his entire kingdom, which is the known world at the time. And so he says, to everybody, I want everyone to know this. And notice the next word, peace be multiplied to you. Huh? This is the guy who's conquered everybody and killed them. He's blown up their cities. He's burned them to the ground. Peace to you. Does, who does that sound like a little bit like to you? Does that sound like Paul? I, Paul, write this peace and love. It's like something's different. And then he says, it seemed good to me to show you the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. Huh? Really? Do you mean the God that you were just trying to like steal worship from last chapter? How great are his signs. How mighty is his wonders. Notice the word his, 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 four times. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His domain endures, dominion endures forever. Huh? This is a really different dude than he was before. How did all that happen? Right? How did he get there? He's going to tell us. That's kind of the end of the story. Verse four, it's like, boop, earlier, seven years earlier, right? I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now understand, Nebuchadnezzar was, was a conqueror and a military commander, yes. But more, and more, more importantly is he was a builder. He was known for his building projects. He built, and he, and he built cities and palaces, and it was unbelievable, the wealth of this nation. I mean, the head of gold is, is represented by him, right? And so here's some artist renderings of some of the, the places that he has built, right? This is what, let me go here. This is what they think modern Babylon, um, Babylon of the day looked like. Ginormous city. I mean, this is huge, right? I mean, it's, it's like for, for that, back then, you're talking about 600 years before, before Christ, it's, it's ginormous. This is what it probably looked like in the, in the downtown area. They had this moat that surrounded the city. Right? It was a deep water moat. You couldn't get across it. And it had four sets of walls to see. This is what archaeology teaches us. Each wall was about 20 feet thick, give or take, and about 40 feet high because the gates that we found archaeologists are about 40 feet. So the walls, 40 feet is higher than the ceiling. 
20 inches, 20 feet thick, 40 feet high with a deep water moat. All right. It was impenetrable in their minds, which is why next week we're going to see they're partying when, when they're under siege, right? There's a whole nation outside waiting to kill them and they're just having a blast inside because they thought they could survive forever. It was like this, this amazing city. The wall around the city eventually was 17 kilometers and it was wide enough that you could race chariots on the top of it. His palace that he's resting and chilling out in on his couches was with the hanging gardens of Babylon. He built it for his wife who was from the, a different area so she could feel like she was home. It's like a beach house at home. Uh, and, and it was one of the eight, eight wonders of the world. Some people look, think it looked something like this. I'd go vacation there. I'd live there. I don't know about you. I, this is, so when it, what I want you to see is when it says, I was at ease in my house, of course you were. <laughs> I, yeah, of course, yes, I would be at ease there too. Prospering in my house until something happens. I had a dream. I saw a dream that made me afraid. And as I lay in bed, the fancies of visions of my head alarmed me. Another dream, right? And so what do you do when you have a dream? Who are you going to call? Chaldeans. I don't know why. They never do anything. But they call them every time. And so I made a decree. All the wise men of Babylon should be brought in before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, astrologers came in. I told them the dream. And they couldn't tell me. Okay. That, we've seen that before. So what is he going to do now? Why didn't he do it in the beginning? I don't know. But I called Daniel. Last Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belshazzar after the name of my God and highlights it's his God right at this point. And in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods. And I love that little statement. He's going to repeat it. It's almost like there's this Christian mysticism, right? There's this, uh, this he's a multi-God. He, he's got a spirit of the gods in him. And I told him the dream, saying, oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And so he unpacks the dreams. The vision of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and all the birds of heaven lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed and behold a watcher. It's the word for angel. All right, so he's talking about an angel. A holy one came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip of its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and let, its birds, and let birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet. And notice the change of words now. It's a him. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time, seven years pass over him. Here's the key phrase. The sentence is by the decree of the holy watchers and decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. All right? And so there it is. He says, this is the dream. And you, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. There's a spirit of the holy gods in you. It's the third time he's told. Right? So Daniel hears it. And he gets upset. He's sad. He's dismayed for a while. So he, at first Nebuchadnezzar is the sad one, need counseling. Now Daniel is sad. And Nebuchadnezzar, ironically, is counseling him. Oh, Belshazzar, 
Don't let the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Yeah, it's easy for you to, it's interpretation for your enemies. And this is, this is a striking statement, by the way, to me. Because this is a king who has tried to barbecue his buddies, right? In 586, this king destroyed Jerusalem. This is probably, this takes place probably about 583. So three years earlier, Nebuchadnezzar went to Jerusalem and nuked it. That's his hometown. Blew up the temple, literally blew up the temple, right? And so if I'm Daniel, I'm like, I want to stick it to the king. So this dream to me is like, king, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. And it's great for me, bad for you. But he has compassion for this king. He seems to care about this king. And basically, in verse 19, he, I mean, he, he's just like, oh, I just, I just wish it was not for you, king. But then he tells him. He, he tells him what the dream is. Uh, oh, I'm going back to one, one more slide before. There we go. He basically says in 20 to 23, the tree is you. You can read it. The tree is you, king. This is your kingdom. You're great. Everyone's fed by you. Everything is great right now. But, verse 24, it's a decree of God that you're going to be driven away from men. Your dwelling place is going to be the beasts. You're going to go crazy. You're going to be an animal, in essence, until you know the end there that the most high rules. The kingdom, that he rules the kingdom of men. And he gives it to who he wishes. Right? And so it's commanded to leave the stump. Your kingdom will be confirmed to you when you know, in essence, that God rules. So you're, you're, going, you're going to go crazy. And then he makes this appeal. He says, King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquities by showing mercy. Stop being an arrogant fool. Stop being a knucklehead. Maybe, maybe God will relent. Maybe there'll be a lengthening of your, of your prosperity. And that's really the end of the story. You don't have a thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. You get to be in charge again. It's kind of like, okay, takes it. And the next thing you see, all this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, one year later, he's walking across that palace that I showed you. Beautiful, looking out on this amazing city. No city has ever been like it. And he says to himself, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power? as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. And while the words were still in his mouth, he hasn't even spoken them out. There fell a voice from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom shall, has departed from you. Shall be, you shall be driven among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox set until seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And it happened. He's driven among men. He starts acting like an animal, barking at the moon, eating grass, acting crazy. His nails get all long and, and his hair's all, like, it looks like some kid out of the 60s or something, I don't know. For seven years, he eats grass and acts like a crazy dude until he looks up. At the end of those days, I love that phrase, I lifted my eyes. We sang it earlier. Look and see our God. Lift up your heads. He lifts up his heads to heaven and his reason returned to him. Underline that phrase. We're going to see it. My reason returned to me. And when his reason returned, he blessed the Most High. He praised him. And he said, why? Because his dominion is forever and ever and ever. 
and all the inhabitants of the earth are nothing. Right? No one can stay his hand. No one can say to him, what have you done? Sounds like Romans 8 and 9, I mean 9 and 10. And at the same time, there it is again. My reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom and majesty and splendor. And my counselors and my Lord sought me out. They came and get him. They cleaned him up. They cut his nails. They cut his hair. They said, oh, it's good to have the old Nebuchadnezzar back. And he says, it's not the old Nebuchadnezzar. Somebody, something different. Right? And he becomes king again. And now he concludes with this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Why? All his works are right. All his ways are just. And those who walk in pride. Here's the theme of his whole, this is his conversion story. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You can humble the most powerful man in the world. You can humble anybody. Right? So what can, what can we learn from this conversion of a king? This story. What, what has he highlighted for us in his, in his testimony, for lack of a better term? It, it's, it's, he's made very, very strong statements. And, and when we want to make something emphatic as a culture, if we want to tweet something, what do we do? We bold it, right? Control B. Boop. We underline it. Control U. We italics it. Control I. We highlight it. We do, you know, we do what we have all, we put little emojis next to it. You know, whatever, smiley faces. That's how we highlight it. That's what, we want you to see this. In the scripture, when God wants to highlight something, the way he puts emojis or bold or highlighting it is he, there's repetition. Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do this. Blessed are those who do this, Jesus says. Well, what is Jesus trying to say? You want to be blessed? This is the way it is. Truly, truly, I say to you. What is he saying? Listen to this. This is important. Repetition is, is bold letters. And there's three things that, that Nebuchadnezzar has put in bold for us. More than three times. He has constantly said it. If you read this chapter over and over, you'll see it more and more. Let me highlight those because I think they're great lessons for us as we, as we look at his testimony. Here's the, here's the biggest one. Only God is great. Did you see that in the text at all? Verse two, he says he's the most high God. It's the Hebrew El Elyon. He is the most high. Higher than his God, Marduk or Bel, or all these other gods. Verse three, his kingdom, his majesty, his this. Verse 17, he calls him the most high God again. Verse 24, he says the decree of the most high God was this. Verse 32, until you know that he is the most high God. Verse 34, he is the most high God. Verse 35, no one can stay the hand of this God. Verse 37, he is the king of heaven. You see what he's saying here. There is no one great but God. Yet, and we would say that because we're in church on Sunday. But how, how often do we really miss that? Really? Because what I think is, I think we have a culture and we have, and my heart is the same way. We are infatuated with fame, with being liked, with people who do great things. Right? We want to be like that. We want to I mean, why else is the number one followed person in America, Katy Perry? What has she done? Justin Bieber's number two. What has he done? At least uh, President Obama is number three. At least he was president. That's the only, like, leader in the whole crew. Justin Timberlake? I couldn't even name a song by any of these people. What's the, the country girl? She, she's on there, too. I forget her name. But I... But that's who we like. That's who we follow. Right? That, that's who people are, are looking to. And we'll line up for hours to see him or get a, a, a picture of him. An athlete. 
somebody that's rich, somebody that's powerful, or, or you know, and that, that's what we, we see as greatness. But what, what Nebuchadnezzar is saying is that, that the most high rules, and he gives the kingdom to who he wants. He gives power to who he wants. He, he does what he wants. He's the one that's great. So the reason Steph Curry is so quick and can shoot from 80 feet away is because God enabled him to do that. Right? The reason Beethoven was so brilliant is because God gave him the ability to do that. The reason Steve Jobs was so creative and, and just able to just figure things out and make things awesome was because God gave him that ability. The reason anybody has any gifts or pr prominence or anything is because God has empowered him. Henry Ford, he was so smart, he figured this out. That was a God thing. Whether they acknowledge it or not, Einstein is a genius. He's brilliant. Why? Because God made him that way. And so the point is this. We don't worship the creature. We worship the creator. That only God is great. And it's just the constant message of scripture. It's the constant message of the church. And we cannot be infatuated with people. We cannot be infatuated with trying to be, oh, what was she wearing on the red carpet? Oh, I want to wear it too. She wasn't wearing Target. All right, she wasn't wearing Marshalls, my favorite place. But it, only God is great. That, that's the point. The only reason that we don't spin off the earth right now that's spinning at a thousand miles per hour is because God holds us here because he created something called gravity and physics and I don't understand it, but I'm not flying off, so I'm happy. Only God is great. And if he's only great, then he is the only one worthy of our worship, our devotion, and our praise. That's the first point, and it leads to the second two, but you can't miss him saying it. He is the most high God. And the second thing is this then. If he is the only one that's great, then pride is insanity. And this is where it gets practical. In its simplest terms, what happened to old Nebuchadnezzar? His pride drove him mad. Literally. He acted like an animal. He ate grass. And, and it's interesting, two times it says, when my reason returned, when my reason returned, right? It wasn't rational for him to say, my kingdom, my glory, my mighty hand. When my reason returned, what did I do? I worship God, I acknowledge God, I bless God. It's interesting that Solomon, the wisest man in the, to ever live, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? He doesn't acknowledge it, and so he goes crazy. And, and the reason why, y'all, for us as Christians, who those of us who follow Christ or say we're Christians, here, let me give you a couple reasons why pride is insanity. Number one is because God despises pride. Proverbs say, six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination, the first one's pride. Right? Number one is Pride. This is, this, this is the sin that got Satan kicked out of heaven. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28. Because pride puts yourself in a position of worship and glory in God. And you are not designed for, you are meant to enjoy that. You are meant to savor it. You're meant to see it. You're not meant to receive it because you can't handle it. You cannot handle being worshiped. This is why all these little kids that are teenagers when they work for Disney or on the Disney Channel and Nickelodeon, when they're 24, they go bonkers and they go crazy because they've been worshiped and worshiped and told how great they are and they cannot handle it, so they're wacky. You were not created to receive worship. You're created to give it. 
right? Herod was not created to receive worship. So he's, when he's standing in Acts, on the, and everyone's like, the voice of a God and not a man. And he's like, yes. And then all of a sudden he gets eaten with worms. Pride literally kills him. It destroys Nebuchadnezzar. And, and the reason I tell, tell you God, God despises it, because we, we make pride a lower level sin, don't we? Drunkenness is a sin, right? Cursing is a sin, right? Homosexuality is a sin. Adultery, all the, these are the big sins for us. Pride is those one when we're in a community group or in an accountability group. How you doing this week? What you're struggling with? Oh, you know, just pride, just pride. That's everyone's go-to because it's like, yeah, well, me too. Yeah, we're all proud, yeah. The, the problem with that is pride has sent more people to hell than adultery ever has, than cursing, Right? Because it, it, it's the thing that puts you in the place of God. And he despises it. Right? He just, it's, the only, it's one of the few things it says he hates. It's, it's not something to play with. It's satanic. The ultimate sin of Satan. Right? So that's, that's one reason for Christians to think it's insanity. Second reason is because God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It's as if when you're on the... Recess field. God's on one team and you get picked on the other. Guess who happens when you're on the other team of God? You lose. And so you think, oh, I got plenty of money. I got plenty of authority. You know that money? Just one lawsuit. I mean, what does the end of the, of the chapter say? What does Nebuchadnezzar say? God is able to humble whoever he wants to humble. I was the richest, most powerful king ever and I'm eating grass in bad need of a mani-pedi. Right? You're the stud athlete of your college team, of your high school team, ACL. That's a year, baby. Right? You think you're all that and my business is killing everyone else's, it just takes IRS. And the point is, is God can humble anybody he wants. And he's opposed to the problem. And Christianity and pride, just, it can't be in the same room. It's an oxymoron. Because you bring nothing but sin. Right? So, so we have the doctrines of grace. And, and you know, the average 22-year-old guy that starts becoming a Calvinist and loves the doctrine of grace, he becomes arrogant, which is ironic since the doctrines of grace teach you that you have nothing. They just can't fit. God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Right? He makes a, a, the most powerful man in the world crazy. And here's the third reason is God gives you over to do dumb things when you're proud. When you are proud, you, you do dumb things. This is the heart of Romans 1. When you deny the existence of God that is clearly seen, he gives you over to do dumb things. Right? Gives you dumb things? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's proof. He's had three chapters of really strong miracles and signs that God has showed up and he's still hardened his heart. He gets his dream interpreted. He gets his buddies, his buddies don't get barbecued and he's still opposing this God. I mean, how dumb can you be? You do dumb things. This is why social media, I'm not anti-social media. I don't do any of it, but I'm not anti it. I just stalk y'all on Facebook. That's what I do. <laughs> I don't really. But you do dumb things with social media, because the desire ultimately is what? To be liked. 
I want to be liked. I want to have the most followers. I want to have the most friends. I want you to see how perfect my life is, even though it's really not. I'm going to put this filter on to make it look this cool and this, this. And, the, and, and there's, again, I'm not anti those things, but there's, it's, there's not just a spiritual issue. There's actually a physiological deal going on there. Every time you get a like, do you, know, do you realize, or a tweet or, or a text, that there's this little release of dopamine that's just kind of like, yeah, it's a little energy. It's like, I got a like. I got a hundred likes. I got a, and there's something there about wanting, and people will do stupid things to get likes. I have teenagers. They do dumb things to be liked, right? Because I, I don't want people to not like me. And everyone wants to be friendly and everyone wants to have friends. I'm not saying that's bad, but there's something about me when I am, I, just when it's all about me and getting like, that, that makes me do dumb things. You gotta be guarded, right? You gotta be guarded. And so you do dumb things and Nebuchadnezzar does dumb things and we do dumb things. Let me, let me give you some warning signs because again, we all can fall into this pride issue. Let me just give you some areas that like, think about this. If you are really successful or good at something, you need to be on guard. I mean, your business is great. You're, the, you're a great athlete. You're a super smart teacher. You're the, God, there's nothing wrong with being successful. There's nothing wrong with having ambition. In fact, I would say that, that it's, it's, it's godly to have ambition and strive for excellence and, and, and do your best. That is good. But there is a temptation when you make the varsity, when you make the first million, when your business does this, to think that you have done that and that is where you're in dangerville. Success can be a very slippery slope in the pride. And again, I think we should be, I think that our 1,400 people should be the best employees in all Savannah. I think our businesses should be the best. That's, that's what you should strive for. That's, I believe that with all my heart, that you're working with all your heart for the glory of God. But just because you actually get there doesn't mean that you've actually done it. It's a God thing. And what God has done is he's, he's said, I'm not against ambition, I'm just refocusing it. I'm redirecting it so it's not for your glory, it's for mine. And so here's, a, here's truly what success is. It's not being the best, it's, it's actually being a servant because the Son of Man came to serve. Another area you gotta be careful, this is for parents, is if your kid is really good at something. You got a lot of Uncle Ricos out there. All right, back in 84, right? Some of you are laughing because that's you. I can see you right now. Your child is not there to make you look good. Okay, now they may do that, and that's called common grace. But they're there to make God look good. And they may be a great athlete, and they may get into MIT, or they may be in the Georgia Honors, or they may be a doctor, or they may be a whatever. And that's awesome, but it is not about you. And when you're, it's so easy when your child's good at something. That's my child, Right? And remember, they are gifts from God and they are for his glory. And so just, just remember that. And when you're praying for them, pray that, that they would use their talent, whatever it is, for God's glory, not for Bill's glory, right? If I just got a tall one, it would have been great. But, you know. <laughs> if you have plenty of money in the bank, be, be on guard. And God is not down on rich folks. I'm not saying that. But there is a tendency. This is why Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven because he doesn't see his need. And there is a temptation when we have plenty to be like the guy that says, I built big barns, today I'm just gonna rest. And Jesus says, you fool, don't you know your soul has been 
is, is, is gone, basically. Tonight's the last night. And so it's just, it's an area to be, be aware of, to be on guard. That's all. It's not bad or good to have a lot or a little. Sometimes God gives you a lot. But it's, you got to be on guard. It's just an area to be on guard. These areas to be aware. When you find yourself constantly comparing yourself to others, beware. And we all do this. I do this. Because I just spent a week of volleyball, and I'm thinking, my daughter better her daughter and her daughter. She needs to be off the team because she ain't no good. And I'm not even lying. That was my repentance this morning before the sermon. I'm just telling you. Okay. And I'm going to do it again next week, but that's all right. But when you find yourself saying, look, I got my hands up and I'm worshiping and they're not. Our church is growing and their church is not. My family, all my kids are going to Bible college and they're doing their quiet times and their kids are wild. I, I don't dress like them. I don't do this. When you find yourself comparing yourself to others, beware. Beware. Because your, your job is not to say compare yourself to others. It is to compare yourself to Jesus. And when you do, you fall way short, which is why we have a Savior. Right? Don't, don't compare. Don't compare. Don't compare to your... You're, you're, don't compare your kids to each other. One kid might be this and what. Just don't compare. God has made each one of us unique. But we're, we're, we're comparing ourselves to Christ and, and that's why we rejoice in grace. And that's how we get judgmental. That's how we get arrogant. And that's how God's hand is removed from a church and says, fine, you want to do your own thing? You take it. I'm taking my candlestick away from this church and I'll give it to the one you're looking down on. Right? God is opposed to the proud. One other area if you, you need to just be aware of is if you're persisting in active rebellion against God. If you, you know that this is sin, but you're thinking, well, I'm getting away with it. I'm getting away with this little flirty, flirty relationship at work. I'm getting away with this little addiction behind the scenes that no one knows about. I'm getting away. I'm getting away. You, you just you need to be wary that the reason that God is being patient with you is his kindness is supposed to lead to repentance. How long did he give Nebuchadnezzar? A year. It's a long time. A year to get it straight. And all it did was made him harder and harder. It took seven years of eating grass to break the man. Right? So we want to cultivate humility. How do we do that? And notice, never in the scripture does it actually tell you to be humble. Do you know that? It never says be humble. Do you know what it tells you to do? It says to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. There's a difference. Be humble. I'm a humble person. Or actually to humble myself, to, to actually do something to make myself humble. Let me give you a couple thoughts on humbling ourselves. Because this is the point of his story. Just a couple, just quick, you know, pieces and take some, you know, whatever. But just want to get as practical as we can. Number one is, is just begin and end the day acknowledging your dependence on God. Thanking him. Right? That's what Nebuchadnezzar, isn't that kind of what Nebuchadnezzar does? He says, God is great. He's given me the kingdom. God has done this. It's, there's, just, there's something about when you start your day, whether it's lying down or eat, drinking your coffee or in your car, where you're just like, God, thank you for the fact that I have a car that has air conditioning or it doesn't even have air conditioning, but the windows work. Thank you for literally that last breath. Everyone take a breath. That was a gift. Gift from God. That breath. One day you'll have no more. But that one right there was a gift. He is the author of life. He has given you breath. Right? He is, when you go to bed, thank him the fact that you get to go to bed. Sleep is awesome. Isn't sleep good? Because if you don't have it, 
You know it. Some of you have babies. You don't have it, and that's fine. It's your turn. We did our part. Okay? But sleep is a gift. And, and, and just your education. You get to go to school some of you. You get to go to college. You got a scholarship. You can play a sport. You have a job. What? There's just something about being thankful. Isn't that what he does? How great are his signs, he says. He says his dominion is great. He's thanking God. When you cultivate, start cultivating that, it's hard to be arrogant, isn't it? Number two, reflect on God. Reflect on the nature of God. Reflect on the character of God. Again, that's what he does. How great are his signs? How great are his wonders? We sang it earlier. When I survey the wondrous cross, on which the, the prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but lost. And do what? I pour contempt on all my pride. There's something about when you think about God's grace. And this is why we don't compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to God. When, you, when you're standing next to something great and you're not, it's evident. You can say, oh, look at my, my, my yard is so pretty. And look how I've spent all this time and I got the edger and the flowers. Go to the Grand Canyon. That's great. Your yard ain't great. There's something about when you have a little compared to big, me standing next to LeBron. Great, not great. Right? And so, yeah, I can beat my nine-year-old in basketball. Yeah, I'm the man. Dunking on a seven-footer. Woo! LeBron is literally laughing at me. When you, when you, when you start reflecting on God regularly, read the Psalms. It's a great place to start. That, then there's something that poor can contempt of my pride. Look at God has done. Number three, don't take yourself so serious. Laugh, maybe cry. Admit when you're wrong, joke around, loosen up. We mess up so much around this place. I'm thankful you're great. I mean, we mess up so much, you expect it now, which is great. But you know, be willing to apologize. Invite correction into your life. Don't freak out when people give it to you. It's something about, it's, it's moderately humbling when you tell your spouse or your parents or your buddy, hey, if you see something in me, you just need to call me out on, hey, do it. When you give someone access to do that, that's a little bit humbling, but that's great. It's a good place because this iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens the other. Because there's something blinding about pride, right? You don't, when we're comparing, we don't see this, but, but they have this. And so it, it's, it's a great thing to do. Here's a big one. Look for opportunities to serve. What is greatness in the kingdom? Not the first in line, the last in line. Even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Look for opportunities to be obscure. Some of you are like bigwigs. Awesome. God has given you great. So what you bigwigs ought to do is go look for a place where you can be a little wig in obscurity. Do stuff you're not good at. There's something great about doing something that you don't always thrive at. Some of you are good at everything. Find something you're not good at so you don't think so hotly of yourself, right? And I'm not giving you an excuse to go play golf on Saturdays. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Well, some of you should do that because it's probably humbling, but... Uh, go find some area that you're not in charge and serve there. Do something for somebody that, that doesn't get credit. This is great. For our kids, we got to cultivate humility in our kids. So make them do hard stuff. 
I've told you this before. I, and I, lo- I have one daughter, three boys. So it's a little, I have, I'm not as like some of you got like a bunch of girls in your house. That's great. So you got to gr- treat them like princesses and make them work like dogs. <laughs> Don't give them everything they want. Oh, you want, a, you want Alexis? Okay. You are setting her husband up for failure. Seriously. Make her, teach them to, to work hard. Teach them the value of that. To be humble. Let your boys do hard things. Let them sweat. Let them struggle. Let them wrestle. There's something about wrestling that makes you think, oh, I'm, I'm, I need help. That's a good place to be, right? And then they call dad and dad comes in and helps. That's the model we want in life, right? I can't do this, Lord. You call on your father. He comes in. That's what we're trying to teach him. Um, ask questions. Here's the last one. We don't, especially in trials. When you're in a trial, our, our, our number one usually goal is to try to get out of the trial. But I would say, actually, the first thing we should do is, okay, God, what are you trying to teach me in the trial? Because what the trial does is it reminds you of your brokenness and your creatureness. You are not God, you're a creature. So God is bringing this trial in his providence and his sovereignty so that you will learn something about you and something about him. And so learn it quick so maybe he'll take it away. Because the more you can fight it, sometimes the more it comes back. So you grow through it. And so what can I learn in this trial, ask questions of people who've been before you. You got younger kids, ask people with older kids. You got no kids, ask people with, with babies. If you're single, ask newlyweds. If you're, you know, whatever it is, but ask questions. Learn from other people. That's what the body is, all right? But we want to cultivate humility. Why? Because pride is insanity, especially for a Christian who has done nothing but crucified the Lord of glory, all right? And here's the last thing. Last thing that, that I think Nebuchadnezzar wants us to get. He wants us to get that God is great. He wants us to get a pride is insanity. He wants us to tell people what God has done. How do I know? Because that's what chapter four is about. I, Nebuchadnezzar, to everybody in the world, what I want to tell you is what the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs. The sanest thing you can do is tell people what God has done for you. That is the wisest thing you could do. Solomon says, the wise man wins souls. Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who, the strong man boast in his strength. Let him who boasts, boast of this, that he knows and he understands me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness, and earth. Paul later in the gospel says, far be it from me to boast except in the cross. The wisest thing we can do as a church is to sing the praises of God. The psalmist, Psalm 1911, I was thinking about this morning, he says, sing praises to the Lord who sits in Zion. Tell among the peoples of his mighty deeds. Things haven't changed Old Testament, New Testament, have they? Wisest thing we can do is be a people who sing his praises and tell the people of his deeds. That's it. That's what he does. And he takes his, he uses his throne to do it. His Twitter. Let me tell you, everybody, what God has done for me. That is, that's, that's sanity. Pride in sanity, boasting in God's sanity. And so that's what we're going to do, right? What can we learn from a conversion of a king? And, and some people debate whether or not Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. I got no doubts. I think that we will see him around the glassy sea, casting down our golden crowns. I think it took him a while to get there. Took him a lot of heartache. Took him seven years of grass. I'm sure that helped his stomach. But one day you will be with Nebuchadnezzar 
with the other millions of others worshiping the lamb. And he'll just be another guy in the crowd. He was the most powerful man in the world. He will be on his face before the lamb. But we will be there together. And if you could be here today, he would say, only God is great. Pride is insanity. Just tell people what God has done for you. Look for opportunities. I'm, I was this, and now I'm this, by God's grace. Not perfect, but I have a savior, I'm forgiven. It's an opportunity, that's what we're called to do. So let me pray, and then we will obey the psalmist. We'll sing praises to the Lord, who sits enthroned in the heavens, and we'll tell of his deeds. Father, I ask that um, just the testimony of a, of a brother, ultimately, would encourage your church. I pray for a, a God-centered, a Christ-centered church, not man-centered, not what we can do, not, but what you have done. That we would survey the wonders cross, that we would look and see our God, that we would crown him with many crowns. Um, if, if we pursue your glory and your namesake, Lord, we cannot go wrong. Uh, if we delight ourselves in you, you will give us the desires of your heart. So I just pray that as a church. I pray for those who, just, there's an arrogance and there's a uh, boasting and there's a pompousness about just them, including myself, that we would humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and that you would exalt us in the proper time. Um, so we do that, Jesus. We worship you now. We sing praises. We do the wisest and sanest thing we can do. We declare your mighty deeds to each other, to your church. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.